So as just mentioned, uh, we just read the entirety of our text in the reading, and so I don't think that we need uh, to read it again. And I don't think that many ministers will usually say this often, but having read the text already once, I hope that you're sufficiently a little bit shocked and a little bit confused. Because what we just read together, it's widely considered uh, one of the the most confusing and challenging parables that Jesus ever told. And so, just a quick rundown in case you don't quite remember from a whole song ago. Uh, (laughs) There's this man that we read about, and he was accused of wasting his boss's resources. And so, understandably, he was fired. Then that man went out very quickly, wasted a lot more of his master's resources, and then the master commended him, And then Jesus himself said to his disciples and people like you and me, you could learn a thing or two from this guy. And this is a really fascinating parable. It's been talked about quite a lot for a long time. Uh, When I was studying this passage, I actually found out uh, that in ancient Rome, uh, people would point to this text and use it against Christianity. They tried to use this text as proof that Jesus was trying to teach his followers that they should be thieves and crooks and robbers. And I hope you don't believe that that's the case, because that's obviously not true. But it is true that, that it's a confusing parable at first read. And so what we need to wonder is, what's going on here? Jesus is our great and faithful, our infallible teacher. So what does he want each of us to learn from a passage like this? What does he want us to learn from this shrewd, this evil manager? And what we'll see today is that actually in this passage, Jesus has a very practical, a very useful message for all of us. And what we see is that Jesus is telling in a very shocking way, he's telling you to invest in your future. We'll see that in two parts. First, we'll see uh, the present situation, and then secondly, we'll see the appropriate response. And so first we need to consider the situation, which is a lot like our situation that's going on in this parable. Okay, so first of all, just imagine this steward or this manager. What we need to know, first of all, is he has a really good job for the time period. It was a time when there were many people who were slaves or servants. There were many people who were in poverty. And this guy was none of those things. This man was put in the charge of a rich man's whole estate. He was basically given the ability to yeah, run all of his household and all of his assets. And so that likely meant that he had a nice house. He had good food to eat. He had great job security for the most part. And he's been hired as this manager or this steward. And it seems from his perspective likely that it's going well. But then right at the beginning of our parable we hear that the rich man who he's employed for He started hearing rumblings around the town. That this isn't a very good manager at all. But instead he's been squandering his money. And so the the landowner, he he calls in the manager. Has a very short, very awkward meeting. I don't know, maybe some of you have been fired before. I don't know if this is exactly how it goes. But but the rich man said, What's this I've heard about you? He says, Give an account of your management. Because you cannot be a manager any longer. So in other words, really quickly, you're done, you're fired, and turn in the books so that I can see what kind of damage you've been doing. 
And so on the one hand, this must have been devastating for the manager. He just lost his livelihood, likely his reputation, his house, uh, all these great things that he had. And you get a glimpse into his uh, thought process in verse 4. He says, what shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. And he says, I'm not strong enough to dig. Just look at me. Uh, I'm too ashamed to beg. I'm too proud. And so he's faced with a tough situation. But if you look carefully at the parable, it doesn't seem like it's an altogether a shocking situation to him. Uh, there's, well, just think for a moment. We'll do a thought experiment. Imagine for a second your, your longtime boss who trusted you a lot. Uh, he calls you into his office and he accuses you of squandering his possessions, just wasting a bunch of stuff. Well, what would you do? Likely try and defend yourself at least a little bit, I, I would think. But if you look at this parable, not at all. And so many commentators assume uh, that he knew he was guilty. He's scared of handing over the books because he knows they're going to confirm what this man's been hearing. He has been an unjust manager. He deserves to be fired. He deserves whatever is coming. And so what we need to realize is that for the original audience, uh, for the disciples, any um, uh, other Jewish people who are overhearing, um, likely they would have understood that they had a little bit of an association with this steward right off the bat. And so all of God's people, of course, well, all created people, what do we have that we have not received from God? Everything that we have, really, we're, we're just stewards. But the Israelites were stewards in a special way. The Israelites were granted the promised land. They, they were given God's law and, and his covenant. They were, had blessings poured out on them. And what kind of stewards were the Israelites? They were bad stewards. They had great gifts from God and they wasted them. The promised land, they turned their back on God as quickly as they could. The, the law, multiple times you read in the Old Testament, they lost it completely. And likewise, what we should see is we're not so different from them, are we? We too, we ought to realize right at the beginning of this parable, we're God's stewards as well. It's shocking when you think about it, but just imagine you go back to your house and you look around and you say, hey, this is all my stuff. But actually, God looks at it and he says, that's all his stuff. It's his stuff that he's entrusted to us just for a little while. And that completely changes our perspective, doesn't it? Even our perspective on giving. Uh, I've heard someone put it this way once, that uh, if you're thinking about it as your own possessions, then when you're giving to the church, then you're thinking, oh, how much of my money am I going to give? But if you just have a little bit of a different change of reference point, and you think this is all God's money, you're like, well, how much of it am I going to keep? That's a scary question right away, isn't it? And so likewise, uh, we can realize that we too are stewards, not just of physical possessions either, but, but every gift that we have, every talent that we have, these are all things that God himself has entrusted to us, e even opportunities that we have. Uh, I think that's a pretty big one. Opportunities that we have to show Christian love, Christian charity, uh, Christ-likeness, or, or patience, or even opportunities that we have potentially to share the gospel. Uh, I was talking with one of my uh, really good friends not too long ago, and we realized in hindsight that 
all we could do was just repent to the Lord. Because looking back on past jobs, looking back at past time in university, we had clear opportunities to show Christ-like love to people, uh, to share the gospel with people, and we had completely squandered those God-given opportunities. And so what could we do but repent? And so it's helpful to start there. Keep in mind that we too are, are bad managers. But what we have to realize is that this parable isn't really answering the question of how bad managers can be right with God. Because actually, if you have your Bibles open, if you look at your text, then you want to look at the very end of Luke 15, just right before this parable. And there you'll see what Jesus had just finished saying. He's just finished a very famous parable, hopefully one that many of you are familiar with. The parable of the prodigal son. That's a parable of another bad manager, so to speak, isn't it? If you're familiar with the story, there, there was a son, and he arrogantly he took as much of his father's inheritance as he could, as much as he reasonably thought he was entitled to, and he left. He turned his back on his father. He went and he squandered it all in reckless living. And then there's a really beautiful phrase in that uh, parable. Which is that as he's out there, as he's wasted all of his father's money, as he's ruined this relationship, at one point, it says, he came to his senses. He came to his senses. And that's when he realized that life as a slave in his father's house was better than being off on his own, squandering all the possessions he could get his hands on. And so that's actually step one. That's before you even get to our parable for today. The question of how bad stewards like us, how we could ever possibly be made right with God, is found in that parable. We come to our senses and we we turn back to God, realizing we need to ask for mercy, that maybe he'll just allow us to be a slave in his household. What you find in that parable is that he's so much more merciful than we could ever hope. Instead, as soon as you turn back to God, you find he's running out to you with open arms. He wants to forgive you. He wants to show mercy. He wants to invite you back into his household. And that is crucial, crucial information to understand uh, this parable as well. Because it's only after explaining the parable of the prodigal son... That if you look again at the very beginning of Luke chapter 16, you'll see who the audience for this parable is, the parable of the true manager. Jesus turns away from the crowds, from those who are unconverted, and he just talks to his disciples. And so what we're dealing with here isn't a question of how can we be saved, how can we be made right by God. Well, that's, a, that's in the last parable. By, by going to the Lord, looking for mercy, and finding out he pours it out us, on us in abundance. But here Jesus is moving on to the next part, which is a completely different question. Not how we be saved, how we can be saved. But instead, once we are saved, now what? And I wonder if you have ever thought about uh, it like this. But in a sense, the Christian life right now, after the cross, we're sort of in a uh, period of limbo. Uh, I think we saw that really clearly in this morning sermon, actually. You remember this morning sermon? How did, well, not this morning, this earlier afternoon. How did Jesus uh, describe the time period on earth right now? As people, as bridesmaids waiting by the road for him to come back. It's sort of an interesting in-between period, right? Christ has already come. He's already paid for us. 
But he hasn't come back yet, and, and now we've got some time in the middle. And that's what this parable about the shrewd manager is speaking to. Jesus is teaching us, each of us, everyone who believes in him, confesses his name, has been washed in his blood. He's telling you what you should be doing right now, and tomorrow, and the next day, and each day to come. And because we believe that Jesus Christ was the better steward. We read about that in Hebrews 3, verse 6. Uh, Jesus came as the manager over God's house, and we, the church, are God's house. And so we realize we're like this bad manager. If we have to show God our books of how we've used the gifts he's given us, they're going to be a mess. Or they would be a mess. But we realize that Jesus is the manager over us. And the wonderful news is he's already gone over our books. And everywhere that he's seen a debt that was left to be paid, he wrote down, paid in full. Our books are balanced. We're not worried about the judgment day that is to come, but there's still a question of how do we live right now? And that's what Jesus is answering. And his answer is very shocking, but but very clear. His answer is live like this bad manager, this bad steward, the one who's just been fired, the one who's trying to make the most of the little bit of time that he has left where he's still in charge uh, of the rich landowner's goods. Uh, And what we see is that This steward spends his limited amount of time solely investing all of his energy, uh, all of his time, just in investing in his future. And that's what Christ is teaching us to do as well. And so that's point two. What's the appropriate response to this situation that we're in, this in-between period, the one that we share with this bad steward? And so again, look at the parable and what you see is the steward, he carefully weighs his options. He says he doesn't want to dig. He doesn't want to beg. But then in verse 4, he comes up with a plan. He says, I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into his houses. So he has a plan for how to make friends. To invest in in people and friendships for for the future. And so he rushes away. He doesn't tell us the plan. He just does it. And he starts calling up all of the debtors. All of those who owe his master money. And... Well, we can probably safely assume that there are a whole lot of these debtors. And two are given just as an example. And so this, this shrewd manager, he goes out, calls out one of the debtors, has them come into his office, and he gets them to take a seat, and then asks them, hey, how much money do you owe uh, my master? And the first one says, a hundred measures of oil. I looked into that a little bit. A hundred measures of oil, who knows what that is? Apparently, it's about 950 gallons of olive oil. It's worth about $100,000 at the time. You know, it was an enormous amount of money. And so the shrewd manager, he says, you know what? You take that old bill, you rip it up, and we'll write you a new one. You, You just give back 50 measures, and we'll call it even. And so I hope you can imagine this debtor's excitement. He was just forgiven probably about $50,000 worth of debt. And so he goes probably singing the, the, the shrewd manager's praises, but also the master's praises. What generous men they are. They, they just forgave a life-changing amount of money for him. And so the shrewd manager gets back to work. He quickly goes out and he calls another person. Same thing. How much do you owe my master? A hundred measures of wheat. Ah, just make it 80 We'll call it even. All good. And then again, he makes another friend. 
Someone who goes out and talks about what a great guy he is, how generous he is, but also how generous his master is. And so the steward's plan seems to be working, and then naturally, his master finds out. Maybe you heard from someone in town, they probably would have been so excited at how generous this man was being, forgiving so many people's debts. And so what you would expect, of course, for the master to be furious. But instead, the, the master comes, and he, rather than rebuking the manager, he commends, it, he commends him. He, essentially, he says to him, I've got to hand it to you, that was really shrewd. And that sounds really strange, but I listened to a sermon on this by Alistair Begg, and he said, it's not that strange, really, when you think about it. Uh, and he, he told a story that's a pretty well-known one, uh, but one that's likely a myth, but still a fun story, uh, about these couple of thieves. And the thieves went out and they stole somebody's car. After three days, they return it with a, a full tank of gas, waxed nicely, all washed up, and with a note. A note saying, thank you so much for letting us use your car. Sorry about any inconvenience. Uh, we really needed to borrow it just for a few days. And here, uh, for your trouble, here are four tickets to the theater, please. Uh, your family enjoy it on us. And so the family, they, they go out, they enjoy some time at the theater. They come home and their house has been robbed. And so, of course it's bad. It's wrong. It's a, it's a terrible thing. But on the other hand, it, it's clever. It's shrewd. Not a bad way to rob a house. And so likewise, uh, this master, uh, who is likely a bit of a shrewd business businessman himself, he recognizes, okay, okay, his manager, he did something pretty clever here. And so he commends him, even though he's surely unhappy with him. Uh, he realizes that the, the shrewd manager, he only had a little bit of time. He had uh, a lot of things under his charge, but they were about to be taken from him. And he realizes that he acted really thoughtfully. He didn't just try and keep on squandering the money for the little time he had it. He didn't try and steal it, and he surely would have been arrested if he had. But instead, he did something that uh, increased his own reputation and his master's reputation along with it. And he made sure that he would have a landing place. He would have friends who would welcome him. Uh, once he, he lost control, once he lost his job, lost control of all these assets. And what we need to realize is the same thing is true with Jesus. Because it shocks people when you read the next part of the parable, and it should. But Jesus too commends this man and says we ought to live like him. But we need to realize, of course, Jesus is not commending the dishonesty. And that's why we read the, the verses following our parable together as well. If you look at verses 10 to 12, you'll see what Jesus says right after commending uh, this evil, this unjust manager. Jesus says, whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. Whoever is dishonest with very little will be dishonest with much. If you've not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who's going to give you true riches? If you've not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who's going to give you your own? And so Jesus is still criticizing uh, this dishonesty, of course. But there is one specific lesson that Jesus wants us to learn from this man, his shrewdness. And you can think of a similar text. Uh, I wonder how many of you are familiar with Matthew 10, verse 16. 
Because there Jesus is commissioning his disciples. He's sending them out to go preach. And what he says to them is, I'm sending you out into the world as sheep among wolves. So he says, therefore be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. So he doesn't say be deceitful like snakes. He doesn't say be flighty and timid and scared like doves. One thing that you can learn from each, be shrewd like snakes and innocent as doves. And so likewise, Jesus commends the shrewd manager because he got one tiny thing right in a sea of things he did very, very wrong. And when the one thing he did right is when he saw he only had a little bit of time left with his money at his disposal, he thought things through to make an investment for his future. And so in verse 8, Jesus says, the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. And so that's supposed to be I don't know if it's the right way to say it, but sort of a dig at the people of the light. People like Jesus' disciples, people like you and me. Jesus is saying that the people in the world, people who are uh, concerned with this life, with earthly possessions, they're really good at stopping, taking stock of what talents they have, what resources they have, what opportunities they have, and working really hard to make an investment for 10, 20 years down the line. But what Jesus is saying here is people of the light, people who believe in Jesus Christ as the light of the world, we're not good at doing the same thing. We're not good at looking what talents we have, looking at what opportunities God has given us, what what resources, what talents, whatever he's given us now, and considering how can I invest this in my future? And not just the future 10 or 20 years down the line, of course, but our eternal future, the one that Christ has uh, obtained for us and guaranteed for us. And isn't that strange? If we have eternity waiting ahead of us, why is it so hard to get us to make investments in that time rather than investments for the near future? And so Jesus tells us to, to look at those in the world. Uh, because those in the world, they realize that they have a little bit limited amount of time And they want to use their current temporary gifts as aggressively and cleverly and tirelessly as possible for, say, a good retirement. He says, likewise, we too should try and learn how to use our current temporary gifts aggressively, cleverly, tirelessly for our eternal future. And this is so true, that people in the world are are really good at this. Uh, As I was preparing for this sermon, I looked up lots of uh, success stories. And you can find all kinds of stories. I first wrote this around the time of the Olympics. And people would find out such creative ways uh, that they could cut down a little bit of time in their event. The ways that they could uh, get an edge up over their competition. They would work tirelessly. And for what? A chance maybe at some temporary glory in the Olympics. Likewise, I read the story of Under Armour, which is apparently really interesting. So this man who started the the company Under Armour, uh, he was pretty much broke. He was living in his grandmother's attic. And while he was there, he decided he was going to start a company out of his grandmother's basement. And so he started uh, making some athletic wear, but he had basically no money. And so he looked at what he could do. He applied for every loan or grant he could possibly get. He took out a bunch of credit cards, maxed them out, had $40,000 in credit card debt, and he worked tirelessly. Why would he do that? That sounds awful. 
It's because he was hoping he would make it big, and he did. He was hoping that down the line he, he would have some time that he could rest, some time that he could enjoy. And so he was making investments in his future. And so Jesus is saying here, look, look at how hard these people work. And how about you, the children of the light? We're not just here for, or we're just here for a little while, but we have a great future to start investing in. And Jesus tells us how. In verse 9, Jesus summarizes his, his whole point. He says, I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves, so that when it's gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. And so just as the shrewd manager uses temporary wealth to win friends, Jesus tells you, he tells you and me, start thinking carefully. We know what money God's given us. We know what other items. We know what, some of what talents he's given us, what opportunities. It says start thinking carefully about how you can use these to win friends. But not just friends for the next two or three or ten years. But instead, Jesus says, think about how you can win friends who will be there when worldly wealth is gone who will welcome you into your eternal dwelling place. And so, of course, he's not talking about earthly friends. He's telling us, look at all the stuff you have, all these gifts God has lavished on each of us, hasn't he? Consider how you can win friends for eternity. That's such a beautiful way to look at it, right? And Jesus is, of course, uh, first of all, Well, the primary friend that we should be thinking of when he's talking about friends who will welcome us into eternity is the friend Jesus Christ himself. What a friend we have in Jesus. Every day we have opportunities to to invest some time, invest some resources in growing our own relationship with Christ. And sometimes that falls to the wayside. We, We don't put it as a high priority because instead we're trying to I don't know, earn earthly wealth for now. But, but Jesus is telling us here, we have uh, an opportunity to, to really consider all the ways that, Christ has ble- or that God has blessed us and how we can use these things to strengthen our relationship with Jesus Christ. And maybe we should put more of an emphasis on that in our decision making. When we decide where we're going to live, well, what, what job we're going to get, when we decide what we're going to do with our time off, we should be factoring in this, the most important relationship of our lives. How it affects our friendship with Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ is going to be the one who's waiting there to welcome us with open arms into his eternal dwelling place. And the beautiful thing about this passage as well is that Jesus doesn't talk about our friend singular, but instead he encourages us to start making friends. Friends who will welcome us into heavenly dwellings. And personally, I had never thought about it that way. But, but Jesus is telling us we can use what we've been given shrewdly, and we can plan on how to make it have lasting effects forever by, by considering how we can make friendships for Jesus Christ. And so we should stop and think carefully. Is this true? Are there ways that we have been? Are there ways that we can start to invest in our eternal future. And again, I read some different commentaries and people make the mundane things that we do in day-to-day life sound so spectacular when you use this kind of language. 
Take, for example, yeah, someone, they pass away and they go to heaven. And then someone says, oh, look, look who this is. Look who just got here. This is the person who drove me to church every Sunday. What an investment in eternity. Look at this person. Look at this person. This is the person who, when my faith was at its weakest, they came beside me. They met with me. They had coffee with me. It seemed like a small thing there. But it's an eternal investment. Now you can imagine going into heaven and someone saying, this person, this person, praise God for this person. This person donated money to mission work in Mexico. And by God's grace, he used this person's gifts to bring me to the faith. So that I might be a friend with Jesus Christ starting already now, but going on literally forever. When you start to think of things in these terms, now we're not just in a period of limbo, but we've got just such a wonderful opportunity here. Uh, opportunities to use our God-given gifts for strengthening our own faith, strengthening our own relationship with Christ, but likewise strengthening the relationships of our kids with Christ. And these things that they seem like inconveniences, family devotions, personal devotions, whatever, what have you. All these things, they're actually investments in eternity. And so we should pray that by his Holy Spirit, God might teach us to see these gifts for what they are, not just something that we can enjoy now. Of course, he wants us to enjoy gifts now. It's a beautiful blessing. But in the short term, we can use these as a long-term investment. And we don't want to waste these gifts that God has given us because we always keep on looking back to Jesus Christ. And we see how he modeled this perfectly, didn't he? When Christ came down to earth, what did he do with his time? What did he do with his resources? He didn't try and store them up for his future on earth. But he poured himself out. He emptied himself so that he might have friends like you. He might be friends with me for all of eternity. And now we have the opportunity to follow Christ's perfect example. What a blessing is that? Because he's saved us for himself to be friends. And I just want to end this sermon with a brief story of a man who did exactly that. He was seeking to follow Jesus in his example. That, name was Charles, that man's name was Charles Studd. I wonder if you've heard of him. He lived about 100 years ago. And when he was 24 years old, he was one of the most well-known athletes in the whole world at one of the most well-known sports at the time. He was a world-renowned cricket player. And he was just destined for greatness. Everyone knew he'd be one of the best players in the whole world. And yet one time, when he was talking with one of his atheist friends, his atheist friend challenged him. And he said that if Christians really believed in eternity, they would live their lives radically different than those who were around them. And that started to weigh on Charles Studd because he couldn't disagree. How could he? And so Charles Studd began to prayerfully consider what God wanted him to do with his life, what kind of gifts God had given him. And I don't know about for you, but for me, thinking about that, like, what are you thinking, Charles Studd? It's clear what gifts God has given you. You're, you're a prodigy. You're one of the best cricket players in the world. That's your gift. But, but rather, after praying about it, uh, he, he felt convicted that this was not what God meant for him to do. 
but rather he could invest his time on this earth in a way that would have more lasting effects. And so he quit. 24 years old, I believe. He just quit his cricket career, shocking the world. And he moved to China to be a missionary. And around that time, he also received a large inheritance. And he didn't know what to do, so he prayed about it and prayed about it and prayed about it. Donated the whole thing. Every penny. And while he was in China, his life was extremely hard. Uh, he worked hard and he suffered greatly, and so does his family. But he wrote books, he wrote essays, he wrote sermons. And what he expressed over and over again was that he counted it all joy. He counted it as an honor that he was able to use these temporary gifts, this temporary life that he had. He counted it an honor just to be able to suffer for a little while for the sake of Jesus Christ. Because of course it is. It's an honor to be able to suffer and make sacrifices for the the one who made so many sacrifices and suffered so much more for our sake. And so that's what Charles Studd was thinking of when he wrote this very famous poem that many people know, just very short. Charles Studd wrote, Only one life, it will soon be passed. Only what is done for Christ will last. How true and profound those words are. Only what is done for Christ will for will last. And of course, God knows we're not all called to be missionaries. He doesn't want everyone to be missionaries. He doesn't want everyone to be church leaders. We're not all Charles Studd. Almost nobody is Charles Studd. Uh, but Christ's point here is the very same. He has came, he has saved us, and he's left us here for a time. But it's not just a time of limbo. He's got work for us to do. And it's an honor that we're able to take these temporary gifts, these temporary skills he's given us, and start investing them, not just for our earthly future, but for our heavenly future as well. And so let's consider, let's pray how we can use our gifts generously and even extravagantly for God's glory and for our neighbor's good. Uh, We can consider each sacrifice a great gift and a great investment towards our eternal future with the one who sacrificed so much for us. An eternal future with our greatest friend, Jesus Christ was looking out to each of us, looking forward to wiping away every tear from our eyes. But not with, just with Jesus Christ, but also with all of his other friends as well. Amen. Let's sing in response. When I survey the wondrous cross.